Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. Millions of people in Yemen are facing a potential famine. The country, which was already the poorest in the region, has been beset by a civil conflict stoked by regional players. And now, one of the last lifelines into the country, the port of Hodeida, could be beset by intense fighting. On the line with me to discuss the conflict in Yemen and why, despite the availability of food, Yemen is still at serious risk of famine is Joost Hilterman, the Middle East and North Africa Director for the International Crisis Group. We discuss how and why this conflict erupted, the role of key regional players like Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Iran, and how the United States is shaping this conflict. This is a useful look into one of the worst conflicts that gets the least amount of attention. And if you want to go even deeper, check out my Yemen episode from September 2016 that puts the current conflict into a broader historic context of Yemen as a country and as the product of various tribal and regional rivalries. Fascinating stuff as well. So I know I've mentioned this in previous episodes, but if you are interested in my list of useful Twitter accounts to follow to help you keep up with the daily pace of news from around the world and help you keep your finger on the pulse of what is driving the foreign policy debate at the moment, just send me an email. You can go to the globaldispatchespodcast.com homepage, click the contact link, send me an email, and I will send you that list. Many of you have already. I'm happy to do it. You don't need to be a premium member. I'll just send it to you. It's uh, just a useful way of following the news. It's how I follow the news throughout the day. But if you do want to become a premium member and unlock a number of rewards, including many for your ears only episodes, you can do so by following the link in the description field of this podcast or going to the homepage. Anyway, thank you all. And here is Joost Hilterman. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. About a week ago, I was speaking with an economist from the World Food Program who told me that something like 90% of all food in Yemen is imported, and about 80% of all those imports come through Hodeida, that one port. What's the situation there right now? So Hodeida is indeed the most important port that Yemen has. Uh, of course, there is Aden in the south. Uh, which also has a port but doesn't have the same capacity. Uh, and that is currently uh, in the hands of the legitimate government of uh, of Yemen. Uh, Hodeida has been in the hands of a combination of Houthi rebels and forces under the former president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, who have teamed up in fighting the government of Abu Dhabi Mansour Hadi uh, and ousting that government 
uh, two years ago. So the control of Hodeida has allowed the, the Houthi rebels and the Ali Abdullah Saleh, uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh forces to uh, continue to supply food to the north of Yemen, which is where most, the vast majority of the population live. But, but the supply has been weak because the problem is that the Hadi government is supported by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, and they have imposed a blockade on Yemen, and mostly in order, and certainly uh, ostensibly, in order to prevent arms shipments from reaching uh, the Houthis and the Saleh forces. Uh, and the, the main culprit here, uh, the main party that stands accused, is Iran. Uh, we can come back to that. But in any case, that blockade is there. But it has also affected the supply of basic goods. Now, goods are coming into Yemen, but because there is a blockade and because there are also financial problems with the central bank, um, the, uh, there are real shortages. People cannot afford to buy food. So there's food on the shelves, but many people cannot afford to buy. So there's a lesser, lesser supply and less money on the market. So all of that means that now we face uh, imminent famine mm -hmm. in Yemen. And if the port of Hodeida is attacked by the other side and the supply line to Sana'a, the capital, is cut off, then I think we can be sure that famine will, in fact, break out in Yemen. So is there currently uh, a total blockade of Hodeida, or are the Saudi-led forces leading, letting some, some shipments through? But anything that is certifiably food can get in, and, okay. and so, but often it's done in smaller boats. But it, so there, there is no uh, ban on, on, on food as such. And, and, but, but effectively what happens is that, that less food gets through, um, uh, and, and so there, so there is a really a, a problem of supply, but there is also, as I mentioned, the problem of uh, buying capacity. It's a combination mm -hmm. of factors that is leading to the to the very serious humanitarian situation that the country is finding itself. And, and, and I know I your most recent report covers both both those issues. But but one question on on Hodeida. I, I mean, it, do you get the sense that there is going to be an offensive launched there? So that is a good question, because now uh, we have published something, and of course we're not the only ones. Other humanitarian organizations have uh, highlighted the, the, the coming crisis in Yemen and the importance of keeping Hodeida open, um, uh, and so has the UN and maybe some governments uh, behind the scenes. The upshot of which is that uh, we now see that certainly the United States, uh, and in discussions with uh, the Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, uh, are, are having second thoughts. And and so the the offensive, to the extent that one was being planned, and we were quite sure that it was being planned, um, uh, it has been uh, delayed, and maybe, we don't know yet, cancelled. So in any case, uh, there has been an impact from from the outcry that, has, that we've heard and contributed to uh, about the dangers of attacking Hodeida. Because if you, if you get conflict in Hodeida, the, the port is going to be closed down for a period of time. And even after that, it's not clear that the food supply coming through Hodeida will reach the capital. Um, and that would then lead to a disaster. So I think now what is being discussed, and which is a positive outcome, if we can talk about positive outcomes mm -hmm. in a very serious situation, is the possibility of using um, uh, a certain arrangement in Hodeida where certain inspections would be allowed by the Houthis to make sure that what comes in is actually food and basic goods and not weapons, to allow that to act then as a confidence 
building step mm -hmm. towards uh, a return to political talks, which in the end is what needs to happen in order to bring this war to an end. Well, that's what your report called for, right? The the inspections uh, by like a UN verification mechanism to make sure that what's coming in is in deed food and not weapons, right? And that would lead to some uh, broader political talks. Yeah, the UN mechanism is already in place. Um, and what the UN has been doing is inspecting some ships. But so that mechanism is out on sea, at sea, I should say, and, and not uh, in the port itself. So, but what what it can be negotiated, and something that the Houthis might accept, we we have to see. Uh, it would have to be part of the negotiation, is uh, inspection mechanism in the port itself. Hmm. Uh, would have to be impartial, of course, so UN led. But um, anyway, that that might reassure the Saudi Arabia and the UAE that in fact uh, no weapons are getting through, which is a, a legitimate re uh, requ uh, request, I suppose. So, so what do you think changed the mindset in Saudi Arabia that uh, attacking Hodeida might not be uh, the, the, the best course of action? Well, the question was why, why would Saudi Arabia and the UAE want to attack Hodeida in the first place? Was the aim to, uh, to defeat the Houthis and the Saleh forces, or was the aim to put new pressure on them in order to go back to the to the to the bargaining table, but with Saudi Arabia and the UAE have a better bargaining mm. position. I think it was the latter. Huh. Now the cost for them has gone up because of the potential embarrassment factor that would result from uh, cutting off the main supply to uh, the, the the Yemeni heartland and the famine that would result from it. So I, I think that is that is something that. Uh, hope, I would like to think they don't accept from a humanitarian point of view, but might also prove politically embarrassing. So your report also takes a look at how the ability of Yemenis to purchase food, not just the food supply, is another contributing factor to this massive food crisis and pre-famine situation in the country. Can you talk a little bit about what this dispute over the central bank has to do with that? Yeah, because the this, this thing is, is that the, the Houthis and the Salaf forces, that alliance, are in control of the capital, Sana'a. And the uh, government of uh, Abdurrahman Mansour Hadi, um, you know, uh, first was ousted from Yemen and then came back with the help of the, of the Saudis and the, and the Emiratis uh, and established itself more or less in, in Aden in the south. Um, and so um, last year, the, um, th that government then moved uh, the central bank from Sana'a to to Aden, um, uh, in order to have uh, access to the to the bank's funds. But you know the bank is a technocratic institution; it's not a political instrument. But it's being turned into one because what is happening. And but I, I mean, I can partly understand why the move took place because the bank was distributing money, including salaries, to uh, both uh, you know mili military uh, operatives and. Uh, civil servants who were under control of, you know, what uh, the, the legitimate government considers illegitimate forces. And so uh, to, to get a hold of that money and to distribute it in, in its own way uh, is, is maybe an understandable move. But the, the problem is, of course, that many people who are receiving salaries are not supporters of the Houthis or Saleh, but are simply that, civil servants who are trying to do their jobs and keeping the country running. Um, and and that may be true also for 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 military forces who are uh, fighting simply because they uh, pull a salary that way, you know. So the 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 problem is is that 
is that uh, it's becoming politicized. If you were to let the technocrats of the central bank operate, both in Aden and in Sana'a, then uh, you could see a distribution of salaries uh, to, to, to all who, who have legitimate jobs. Um, and you could stave off uh, uh, the humanitarian crisis that way or try, try to contribute to that. Instead, what we're seeing is that, you know, this is being used as a political tool. And uh, presumably there, there's just not enough, enough money going available in the economy for people to purchase the food that is, that is available, right? So that's the consequence, yes, uh, because the economy is, is down. And, uh, and, and so, and, and goods are coming in, but in a limited way. So you can go to Sana'a, you can go to the supermarket and you'll see food on the shelves, but you know, it's always the people who have income from other sources or who have accumulated savings over the years or are just wealthy who will eat. But that's the vast majority of the population of course is not in that situation. You find it in any country. Um, and that and that is what we're worried about. So could we go back a little bit and talk about the origins of this conflict? I, I've had one of some of your colleagues on the show before to discuss it. I've, I've had other episodes on it, but I think it's useful because, you know, this is one of those situations in which the United States is is a contributor, uh, perhaps indirectly through its support of Saudi Arabia, but also one in which I think is not widely understood. So can you kind of walk me through, walk listeners through how this conflict started and where we are today? Well, you can take the, the, the post-2011 view or the longer view, but just, just very briefly on the longer view. I mean, Yemen has been uh, a country that uh, decades ago, uh, you know, was predicted to fall apart because it, while it had a, a cent- an autocrat in power, Ali Abdullah Saleh, um, it was also rather decentralized in many ways with many uh, actors in, in places far from the capital sort of acting autonomously. Um, and uh, there was a rebellion by the Houthis from uh, the, the early 2000s onward. They were in parliament, then stepped out of parliament and resorted, resorted to arms uh, and began, began a rebellion against Ali Abdullah Saleh. Um, and there were six rounds of conflict. And that, um, at that point, uh, 2011 came around and the, and the Arab Spring, uh, at which point you saw a popular uprising in Yemen, just like you saw it in other Arab countries. Um, and uh, at that point, the, um, the Gulf uh, Cooperation Council, which is the Gulf states uh, led by Saudi Arabia, stepped in and negotiated a, uh, a transition, a political transition, where Ali Abdullah Saleh uh, moved out, resigned, and his deputy, Abu Rabu Mansour Hadi, took his place as a, on an interim basis to be followed eventually by, or sort of by, by a political dialogue and a transition and new elections. So and this was how um, it was supposed to work. Like this was lauded and that, hailed that at was, the time. This was going to be a great model for ushering old autocrats out of power in a relatively peaceful, at least non-disastrous way. Th- that's right. There, 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 there were some problems with it, but overall that, 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 that was a peaceful transition that one could support and was in fact supported by the international community. The UN was heavily involved in the political dialogue and the, in the end, the political dialogue came to uh, certain conclusions, but um, it break, broke down over lack of trust, of course, always, but also over disagreement on sort of what the, what, what the future structure of, of Yemen should be. And this is, has to do with the longstanding question of the South, because uh, the South used to be a separate republic during the Cold War and um, uh, was, was unified after uh, 1991, but uh, there have been many uh, problems, and there's certainly very strong sentiment in the South that that seeks either greater autonomy or even secession. 
Um, so there was no d- agreement over that, and the thing broke down. Meanwhile, the, the interim government wasn't really functioning, not really governing, not really providing services. And the Houthis got fed up um, and, and stormed into Sana'a in the uh, fall of 2014 and allied themselves with who else but Ali Abdullah Saleh, who saw an opportunity to come back, make a comeback. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, and, and he still had uh, support among major sectors of the military forces. So they joined him rather than the, the, his successor. Uh, and that is why they have been able to control so much of Yemen since then. They've, in fact, overreached. They went all the way down to Aden, but then were pushed back by uh, by the, the Saudi air campaign and the ground forces uh, deployed by the United Arab Emirates. And so there has been a standoff now. And when we talk about sieges, I should mention also that the Houthis also have imposed their own siege on parts of Yemen. In this case, in the place where sort of the dividing line is between uh, the forces of the two sides, and that's in the city of Taiz. Um, that city has been under siege now for for over a year, and um, and and there the population is also cut off from food, and the Houthis are very much enforcing that. So uh, there are no there are no good parties in this in this conflict. Um, all both sides have imposed sieges that are leading to uh, star- starvation, um, and now the question is. Um, what is the pos- potential for political talks? What can be done to, because there were political talks, but uh, I think the Trump administration, the, the election of, of, of President Trump uh, delayed and, and changed the, the uh, equation uh, and, and delayed the talks. So now we need to go back uh, to political talks and see what we can get out of this mess. So c- can we talk a little bit about the role of the U.S. in this conflict? I mean, uh, there is some debate here in the United States. I've had uh, Senator Chris Murphy on on this podcast before who put forward a piece of legislation trying to block U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia over human rights abuses in Yemen. I don't think that was ultimately successful, but... Um, but nonetheless, there is, you know, some modicum of, of debate here. And there, I suppose, seems to be some sort of policy review going on in Washington on how to approach this conflict. So can you, I guess, first talk a little bit about how the United States, how the Trump administration seems to be approaching this conflict? Yeah, but I think we need to to, to start with the Obama administration, because um, under under President Obama, uh, uh, the Saudi the, the Saudi um, air campaign, which started in April 2015, uh, was very much supported by the United States militarily mm-hmm. um, and uh, and politically and diplomatically. So, um, th- so the antecedents uh, for the current crisis are there. Um, then, uh, over time, when it became clear that the uh, Saudi air force was not so precise in its targeting and was causing a lot of uh, damage in urban areas and, and, and causing many civilian casualties, the Obama administration became more restrained and in fact even put some restrictions on military support to Saudi Arabia. When uh, President Trump was elected uh, and came into office, uh, he reversed uh, and, and removed those restrictions. Um, and as you mentioned, there is in fact a, a review going on, not just for Yemen, also for Syria, for other places. That's normal for an incoming administration. And we haven't seen the results of that yet. Um, but what is clear is that this administration certainly uh, has, has, has a greater animus against Iran uh, and its perceived proxies, as did the Obama administration. And so we've already heard rumblings of uh, greater support to Saudi Arabia and the UAE against the Houthis, because the Houthis are seen by 
them and by the by the Trump administration as a as an Iranian proxy, which I think is is problematic. Um, but anyway, that's the perception, and they are acting on it now. We, as I said, uh, we we haven't yet uh, seen uh, full-throated U.S. support for Saudi Arabia in this conflict because that review is still ongoing, and also because of the the potential fallout on the humanitarian uh, 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 dimension that that could happen, and I think that is giving people pause. Um, is the the connection between the Houthis and Iran real, or is it a pretext used by Saudi Arabia to justify intervention in Yemen? Well, it's a bit of both. I mean, for sure, the connection is real. It exists. Uh, it's a fact. Uh, it's a fact acknowledged by both the Houthis and Iran. It's of it's of a long-standing nature. Uh, it started in the 1990s. Um, the, the Houthis. Uh, it's not really clear what their ideology is, but but clearly in their slogans uh, they have uh, been been anti uh, United States, anti Israel, uh, pro Iran, pro Hezbollah in Lebanon. So so there is no question about that. It has gone beyond that uh, since uh, especially uh, 2015, 2014, 2015, um, uh, and and it is clear that the Houthis have asked Iran for military support. Uh, and have received some military support, both in the form of arms, but also military training by Hezbollah commanders in Yemen. So, and, and maybe in, in Lebanon, not sure. So, uh, the, 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 but the military training has happened and, and is happening. So, so we have seen a measure of uh, military support of the Houthis by Iran and Hezbollah. The thing is, it, it hasn't made a qualitative difference in the war in the sense that it hasn't allowed the Houthis to hold on to Aden, for example, or to defeat its opponents, even with the help of Ali Abdullah Saleh and the military forces. So, uh, so we need to keep it in, keep it, keep it in perspective. The other part of it is that Saudi Arabia knows these things, um, uh, but is also fearful, maybe understandably, of Iran's rise in the region generally, not just in Yemen, but especially in Iraq and Syria and in Lebanon, and uh, wants to to push back on all fronts. Um, and so it is saying very explicitly that Iran is behind the Houthis, I think is overstating what is really happening on the ground, uh, but is trying to summon the support of the United States in particular in order to counter Iran, spreading Iranian influence in Yemen, but also elsewhere in the region. And Yemen is their you know, backdoor as, as opposed to, you know, say, Lebanon, which is a little farther away. Well, so in Yemen, the, the Iranians have really not done very much, but it it, it mm. takes very little to to make life difficult for the Saudis and the Emiratis. So, so they have actually made uh, only a small investment and 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 gained a big revenue from this. Um. So, in in our last moments, can you describe potential ways out of this uh, escalating conflict? Potential ways that I know the crisis group has made recommendations on what the international community and the various actors can do to uh, start deconflicting the situation. So, deconflicting is 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 one thing. De-escalation is would be next. Um, and 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 so you can do it in a number of ways, and they can be simultaneous. One is to ensure that the the central bank. Uh, up, operates and is distributing public sector salaries n nationwide, and not not just in one location that is on uh, you know under control of the of the uh, the legitimate government of uh, of uh, Mansour Hadi because he doesn't have a lot of support and he doesn't have a lot of territory. We have to look at the the country uh, overall and the, and the overall population. Um, 
you 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 should also look uh, at and I think so. Uh, some of this is now starting to happen, but at a deal over uh, the port of Hodeida because that is in fact the main entry point for imports and as you mentioned, uh, imports uh, account for the, the the majority of goods that Yemen Yemenis consume. Um, so so that's two. And then um, you need to go back to um, uh, to to political talks. They they took place in the past under the Obama administration. There was a plan presented by Secretary Kerry in August of 2016, uh, but then that was overtaken by uh, U.S. elections. Now we need to go back. It doesn't have to be the same plan. It can be adjusted. But uh, the fact is that that plan was embraced publicly by both sides, uh, not by the Hadi government, but by Saudi Arabia uh, and also by the Houthis. And that was quite a feat. So uh, we need to go back to that. Um, and then uh, we, we need to de-escalate throughout the country through a ceasefire and then go back to the hard work of, work, of, of, of forging a political deal that looks at the, the difficult issues of, of uh, the structure of the Yemeni state and, and the power sharing arrangement that, that, sh- that should lead the, the state forward in, in the next stage. And, and for sure that won't be easy. easy. The Houthis will have to give up uh, something. Um, we know that they are good fighters, but not good administrators. Um, we know that Ali Abdullah Saleh uh, is, is uh, uh, you know, um, damaged goods in many ways. He, he's, he, uh, it was um, his mismanagement of Yemen that uh, uh, precipitated the Arab Spring in Yemen. Um, so uh, what kind of role would he, ha- would he play uh, after the transition? That's, that's an important question that needs to be addressed. Um, and there has to be the transition that was interrupted in uh, in 2014. It has to be put back on track. So there are, there are huge challenges and there are no easy solutions. But uh, moving towards famine is, is really the worst case scenario. And that should be avoided at all costs. Uh, well, Jos, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Thank you very much, uh, Mark. And uh, uh, thanks for the opportunity. All right, thank you all for listening. Donkey Vel Yost. And I'll be sure to keep a, a spotlight on Yemen. I think this is probably my third or fourth episode in the last few years on the situation there. It is one certainly deserving of attention. It's one of those four famines that the UN is warning about, that the UN keeps warning about, alas, mostly on, on deaf ears. The other uh, three areas of famine concern are Somalia the parts of northern Nigeria and South Sudan, and actually South Sudan, has already been declared as a site of, of a famine. So it's it's all pretty grim, pretty bad news. Uh, but at least, uh, the least I should say, I think I can do is, is try to shine a spotlight on those situations. So thank you for listening. Thank you for caring about this. And I'll see you soon. Bye.